we are divided. You can sit there with your $30,000 primary education and say that you've arrived, that you've made it, and that you're successful, and that you work hard, didn't you? Privilege still dictates who gets job interviews, who gets hired, and who gets promoted. If I had to go without, it's okay, as long as my children have. When society tells you that you are worth less than somebody else, it's easy to start believing that. Well, this morning, I, I want to take you somewhere. I want you to imagine with me you are somewhere. So we're all at a airport terminal. And we're sitting in one of those chairs. We're waiting for our flight to board. But it's been a while. You, your flight has been delayed a couple hours, and you're sitting there longing. It's been a long trip. Maybe it was for business or, or pleasure, but you've been away from home long enough that you're just kind of anticipating and longing to get on that plane and to go home. And so you're just sitting there waiting for the announcement to board the plane. You're on your phone scrolling through social media. You're doing a little bit of work before you get on the plane, and then the announcement happens. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to now begin to board the airplane. And so you stand up and you begin to stretch because it's a long flight. You know you're not going to have a lot of opportunities to, to walk around and stretch your legs and your arms. So you begin to stretch, you know, you're getting ready for the flight. And they say, hey, we're, we're going to now board our first class passengers. These are the people who paid the most for the flight. They get the added luxuries of a bigger seat, an extra meal, first priority boarding. And so a bunch of people go in line and they board the plane and then the person says, we're, we're now going to board the Platinum World Alliance members. And so more people line up and they go and then it's military personnel, silver elite, business class. And so you watch this good amount of people line up, they hand their tickets in and they board the plane. And then you're kind of just like, okay, I'm ready to go home. I just want to get on the plane and zone one. Zone two, zone three, and you're just sitting there waiting, and what it feels like is it's kind of like the, per the person says, okay, now all the other peasants who are still out in the place can now board the plane. And finally, you're like, yes, it, it's time, but what the airline industry has done is they've broken up the, 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 the boarding process through classes. And what's interesting is as I view my life and I view the way that so many people view life is, is we kind of do the same thing when we see people. And, and what's interesting is we don't recognize it. We don't even realize that in our minds we do the exact same thing naturally as we look at people when we put them in classes. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the fracture of classism. The fracture of classism. You see, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series for the last three weeks where we've been talking about the things in our society that divide us, the things that, that are, are causing tension in our relationships, in our country, and in our community. And we've talked about fractures like sexism, 
fractures like sex, sexism and racism. And, and this morning, we're going to wind down this series by talking about the fracture of classism. Now, let's define the term. What is classism? Well, classism is just prejudice against or in favor of people belonging to a particular social class. So it's when we, when we show prejudice against or for someone based on what they have or what they don't have, how much they know or what they don't know. And, and when we think of that term classism, we, we kind of just lump it all into one category, rich versus poor, right? That's kind of what we view classism is. It's the people who have a lot of money and have a lot of things and then the people who, who don't. But I think it's much bigger than that. I think it's much broader than that. When we think of classism, yes, we, we kind of narrow it down to rich and poor, but I think we put people in classes based off of a bunch of different things. Sure, money is one. I think the second is maybe education. We have the, you know, the doctors and, and the, the surgeons who have lots of education, know a lot of things, and then we have the people who have master's degrees and then bachelor's degrees and then the people who graduated high school and then the people who didn't. And we kind of lump them in, in categories based off of education and intelligence and job profile. What about beauty? We kind of lump people in, in categories based off of what they look, how beautiful they are. What about, what about spiritual maturity? I think in the church, we kind of class people in, in hey, there's the people who, who know God's word, who, who live it out. And then there's the people who kind of know God's word and try to live it out. And then there's the people who just don't. And, and we, we've lumped people in, in classes based off a whole lot of different topics. In fact, we even do it as parents with our kids. You know, we have the kids who are obedient and then the monsters. <laughs> and what's crazy is we do this and we don't even recognize we're doing it. We look at people and we automatically filter through our mind based off their appearance of where they land in our entire class system. And what's interesting is the Bible speaks directly to this fracture in James chapter 2. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. James chapter 2 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to provide one for you. It's going to be on page 978 in the Northridge Bible. I'd encourage you to grab your program, uh, open up your app, and take notes and follow along in Scripture. And as you're making your way to James chapter 2, I just want to say welcome to Northridge Church, to every single person, whether you're joining us from one of our campuses or you're engaging with us online or you're a guest here this morning. We are honored that you are here this morning and thank you for being here. And I also want to say thank you to our church for being gracious during this series. Man, I know this hasn't been the easiest series to talk about it's a controversial series, and we've talked about some really tense topics, and I just want to say thank you for your grace. I know in your community groups, I, I, I know in, in the conversations that you might have been having outside of our auditoriums, I pray that God has challenged you. I pray God has opened your heart maybe to a different perspective. I hope you've had conversations with people who look different than you and think differently than you. And my prayer ultimately for this series is that it doesn't end today. That we just think about this for four weeks and then we're like, okay, let's move on to the next thing. But maybe this stirs up a, a longing to live differently and think differently and act differently. My prayer is that this series wouldn't stop today. And so we see James chapter 2, he begins to talk about this topic, this fracture of favoritism or classism. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
And so here James basically gives his thesis statement. He, he doesn't beat around the bush. He just throws it out there for the church. James is Jesus' brother. He's speaking to the church. And he says, hey, as Christians, as brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ, we can't live and think in an act of classism or favoritism. We can't show favoritism to people based off of what they know, what they look like, or, or how much they have. It's wrong, James says. He just blatantly says it. He says, we can't do this. But then he begins to give an illustration, maybe an illustration that James saw happening inside the church that he was speaking to. Chapter, verse two, he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes, old clothes also comes in. And so James kind of sets the scene for us. He says, in your meeting, now meeting is the term for assembly, which is the term for synagogue. It was the gathering place for Christians. In our culture today, it wouldn't say meeting, it would say church. Much like what we're doing at, at, at right now in, in our auditoriums and watching online as we gather as believers, he says, suppose someone, two people walk into your lobby of your church. And the first one is what we would label the GQ model, right? He strolls up in the Mercedes Benz, the BMW. He has a tailored suit on. He's got the muscles. He's obviously successful. He looks the part. I mean, he looks fantastic. But then another man comes in. This man has painted clothes, torn clothes. He's dirty, smells. And that's the scene that James sets up for us. These two men enter the church. They enter the lobby. And he says this in verse three. He says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. And so James says, so let's say you, you see the, the successful man and you offer him luxuries. Here, have a seat. Would you, would, do you need anything? Would you like a drink? And you take care of him because you recognize what he looks like. He's put together. He's obviously expecting those things, right? But then the poor man, man with ripped clothes, you say, hey, um, glad you're here, but could you not talk to anybody? Could you just kind of stay in the corner? Better yet, the, the scripture actually says, how about you sit at my feet? Now, I don't think that lands strongly in our culture because we don't really ever ask people to sit at our feet, but in this culture, feet were the lowliest part of the body. In this culture, you walked everywhere, you wore sandals, it was dusty, and your feet were disgusting. And for someone to tell someone to sit at their feet, basically what you were saying is, you are beneath me. You are lower than me. And that's what this, 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 this person is saying to that person. And this is what James says about this. Verse four, he says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says, you've discriminated and you become a judge, but not a judge with pure motives, not a judge with good intentions, but a judge with evil thoughts. And James just comes out and he says, listen, we, we can't live this way. I see it happening in the church, and so I'm going to make it clear. This is not acceptable. And he gets at a broader perspective, I think. Because I think when we live in, in, in a world that shows favoritism, maybe towards the rich or to the educated, we live in a society today that, that, that sees classes and knows classes and shows prejudice against and, and for, I think when we live this way, we misunderstand something. 
I think we misunderstand three things. You see, classism misunderstands, number one, the concept of needy. The concept of needy. Let me ask you this. When you hear that word needy, what do you picture? I mean, for a second, just think about that. When you hear that word needy, what pops into your head? For me, there's two pictures. The first one is the guy I see almost every single day on my way home from work. He's at the corner of a street and he holds a sign that says, I'm homeless, need help, God bless. I see him on a regular basis. The second thing I see is I see a baby in a crib in an orphanage. And I see a a baby wanting a mom and a dad, but no one there to love them. Those are the things that I see when I I, I see, I think of that word needy. And I, I would bet probably money that a lot of us, we see something similar to that. And there's something that we misunderstand about the truth of God's word when that's all we picture about needy. Because the truth of God's word is every single one of us comes into this world as needy. We all enter the picture of of life as needy individuals because of our sin. Our sin separated us from God. And guess what? There isn't an amount of money you can pay to fix that problem. There isn't a, a wealth of knowledge that can then solve your issue. The truth is, is we are all in need of a savior who will fight and win on our behalf. And yet I wonder how many of us, when we hear the term needy, we actually picture ourselves. I'm needy. I'm in need of the gospel. I'm in need of Jesus. In fact, James speaks to this. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? him. And so James says, hey, God will take the poor and he will make them rich in eternity if they believe in him. And here's what we've done in society. I think this way, we probably all think this way, is we, we think in our culture today that if you have a lot, a lot of money, you you have a lot of education, you have a lot of things, you have an advantage over those who don't. That's what we believe in our culture today is those who have a lot have an advantage over those who don't. But what's interesting is actually the Bible teaches differently. In fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. He says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Just picture that for a second than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's a powerful statement, a powerful picture. And here's what Jesus is saying is when we have a lot, we don't think we need a lot. And when we, when we, are, when we have a, a lot of money, it's not a bad thing. But when the, our money owns us, here's what people who have a lot of money and who have a lot of things, they don't think they're needy. And when they do have a need, guess what they do? They provide for their need on their own. And what we fail to realize is that we are all needy, whether we're rich or poor, educated or not, we're all in need of a savior. And see, when we live in a favoritistic way, we misunderstand that concept of needy altogether, that we are all in need. But secondly, I think we misunderstand the value God places on all people. I mean, really, if you could really sum this up, and what we're trying to teach in this series is that God values every single individual, whether they're male or female, whether they're black or white, whether they're rich or poor, educated or not, whether they're beautiful or not. Like, God values every single person. Why? Because he created us in his perfect and holy and flawless image. And and I think in in, in this series, man, we need to get back to that truth that God places value on everybody. James talks about in verse 7, he says, Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? 
You see, when you live in a, in a way where you show favoritism towards somebody, here's what you do is you ultimately give someone more value and you strip somebody else of their value. When I value someone who has a lot more than someone who doesn't, I ultimately strip someone of the value God gave them and I give it a little extra dose to somebody else. And we misunderstand the value God has placed on all people. And third, the third thing we misunderstand is my role or your role as judge. You know, what's interesting is maybe the the thing Christians are best at is the very thing that God didn't call them to. The very thing that our culture knows Christians as is the very thing God never wanted us to do, which is judge others. Matthew chapter 7, it says this. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Powerful words from our Savior. And maybe we should just tackle the first three. Do not judge. You see, when we live and we show favoritism, ultimately what we're doing is we're, we're taking on the role that ultimately belongs to God. Is we're taking on the role of judge and we make judgments based off of what we can see, not the facts. And yet God never called us to that. You think of the teacher in, in, in the Gospels who said, what's the greatest command? God said, hey, love God with all your heart. And out of that flows the second command, love others. And yet I, I don't see judge people anywhere in that, in that section. But yet, why do we do it so often? Why do we judge people? Because we misunderstand. See, classism misunderstands the concept of needy. It misunderstands the value God gives every people. And it misunderstands the fact that God never called you to judge. And so when we, when we look at this fracture that's in our society, that's real. We have to look to Jesus as our model. He, he is the model that we follow as Christians. Is, he's our, the pinnacle of what we're trying to become. And when you look at Jesus' life and you study his life, you see that Jesus demolished classism, and he did it in three unique ways. The first way Jesus demolished classism is by the way he came. By the way he came. Now, let's pause here for a second, and let's remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of God, and he's the king of kings, right? I mean, he's the king above any other king. And so you think of a king and a royal family. When a royal family is getting ready to have a baby, what do they do? They roll out the red carpet. They throw a party. I mean, it is going to be on every news station. The king is having a baby. Like, it's going to blow up. There's going to be fireworks. It's going to be amazing. You're going to see Bentleys and Rolls Royces and carriages. It's going to be a big time party, right? That's for a king, but think about the king of kings, right? But yet, look how Jesus came. Luke chapter 2, it says, so they hurried off. Let's pause there. You know who they are? Not celebrities. Shepherds. Smelly, stinky shepherds. Hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. Some king, right? Lying in a food trough for animals born to a virgin who was not married. There wasn't like royalty around, there were farm animals and shepherds. That's the king, right? And you see Jesus, by the way, he first stepped onto this earth, just demolishing and standing against classism because he came different than any other royal line would ever come. Secondly, Jesus demolished classism by the way he lived by the way he went about things. 
Philippians chapter 2, it says this, who, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, let's remember, Jesus is a king. And you think of a, a king in our culture today, guess what that means? It means luxury. It means castles and palaces. It means nice cars and, and, and jet planes. That's how kings live. That's how presidents live. Like they live the life of luxury and they're served on a regular basis. But yet Jesus, the king of kings, he didn't choose the life of luxury, the, the, the life of being served. He actually chose the life to be the servant. You tell me what king lives that way today. You tell me what president today lives that way, where they just say, hey, you know what? I don't need all the nice things. Actually, I want to serve others. In fact, look what Jesus said, Matthew 8. He says this, Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Our savior was a homeless vagabond who traveled from town to town to just love and care for people. He was that awkward friend who was like, you know, hey, we stand at your place tonight, right? <laughs> because he destroyed classism by the way he came, by the way he lived, and then finally by the way he died. Again, you think of a king. When a king is sick, they, they, they do everything they can to keep him alive so he can continue his rule and he can continue his reign. But Jesus, he died as a criminal. Luke 23, it says two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Some king, right, standing between two criminals, dying the death of a criminal, tortured, mocked, on display for everyone to see. And then he died. You think of a king when they die. You think of the ancient pharaohs, they would build a ginormous tomb and they would build this memorial to honor, always remember the king. And yet Jesus, the king of kings, he's not even given his own tomb. He's using a borrowed tomb with, that doesn't even have his name on it. That's the type of king Jesus was. Because he wasn't interested in being in some class or some royalty. He broke down all those walls and lived and came and died differently. And the only conclusion we can come on this fracture and this topic is that when classism is a sin and there's no place for it in Christianity. We look at Jesus and we look at what James says, we all have to come to this conclusion that we can't think this way, we can't act this way. And so how do we begin to make a difference in our own hearts? How do we begin to change the way we think? How do we begin to change the way we act? And I think it starts here. I think we have to understand that appearances lie but hearts reveal. Appearances lie, but hearts reveal. Isn't that so true today? But yeah, we live the complete opposite. You see, in our society and in our culture today, what we do is based off of what we see, we make snap judgments. We look at people and we just automatically assume things about them based off what they drive or how they dress or what they look like. We just naturally do it. Our minds are just so programmed to do that, we don't even know how to stop it anymore. Because we look at people and we just judge them instantaneously. You know, and it comes to this topic, you know, what if we actually got to know people? 
And we actually had conversations with them, and we actually got to see their heart and understood who they truly were before we actually made a judgment call. You know, I, I think of it like this. Um, in my life, I've always, I was given this advice um, when I was young, is when it comes to managing what God has given you, your, your finances, that you should always have a, a, another perspective. You should always have other eyes speaking into the way you manage your, your finances. And so from a very young age, when we, Ashley and I first got married, we always have had a financial advisor, someone to just help us manage what God has given us over the course of our lives. We wanted to plan and be ready for anything that might come. And so we've always had financial advisors. And so what I've always done is I've always wanted to sit down and interview whoever was going to help me manage what God has given me. And so when we moved from Georgia to New York, I sat down with multiple financial advisors. And, and here's some, something that someone always taught me to ask a financial advisor. I want to know what your finances look like. I want you to show me how you manage your money. Because over the course of my life, I've seen financial advisors drive the right kind of car, own the nice house, have a boat, and yet they're in debt outside their eyeballs. But from what you saw, it looked really good. But once you got behind the scenes, it wasn't so good. And so I've always been given the advice, ask this question. Hey, I want to see how you manage your money. Because I want to see your heart. And I think in life, what if we lived that way? Where instead of looking at people and saying, wow, they've got it all together. Or wow, they don't. What if we actually, instead of making the judgment call, we had a conversation? Here's what I would challenge us to do. Don't judge someone. Get to know someone. Don't judge somebody based off of appearances or little facts. How about you spend the time getting to know them? And here's where it gets hard in our culture is social media has wrecked our relationships. Because what we do is we see people's highlights and, and we, we see what they post on a, a Facebook or an Instagram or a Twitter tweet and we, we take people's highlights and we compare it to our reality. And it causes jealousy. It causes friction in relationships. It's because we don't ever take the time to get to know. And I think when we actually stop judging people and we get to know and have conversations with people, here's what it will do. It will change our perspective. For all you high schoolers and middle schoolers, you know that kid at the lunch table who usually doesn't have friends because of maybe how he dresses or what he smells like? Maybe if you actually sat down and next to him and said, hey, my name is Drew. How's your day going? And, and tell me about your life. It might actually change your perspective on that kid who everybody makes fun of. Maybe today for those people who come into our lobbies who don't look like they have it all together, maybe instead of avoiding them, Maybe we just shook their hand and, and introduced ourselves and say, hey, how's it going? My name's Drew. What if, what if we just lived differently? What about that person at the bus stop that you see on a regular basis that you just assume things about, but you've never had a conversation with? What about the neighbor in your neighborhood or on your street that speaks a different language than you, that has a different background or skin color than you, and instead of just kind of assuming who they are, maybe you took them some cookies and said, hey, we would love to have you over for dinner. Get to know you. I think a lot would change if we stopped making the judgment calls. And you know, we think about our church, we think about Pi Squared, and I want you to know something about our church is my prayer and my heart for Northridge Church is that we would become a diverse church. 
that God would use this church to begin to unify people from all different backgrounds and colors. I want us to model the communities that we live in. And so for all of our campuses, that looks a little bit differently. But when you think about our outreach strategy, you think of Pi Squared. And in this series, we think, hey, man, we're going to pray, invest, and invite ultimately people to Jesus. But here's what I found to be true is when it comes to our Pi Squared list, most of the people on that list look like us, act like us, are in the same class as us. But what if that was different? What if everybody made a commitment to say, hey, you know what? My Pi Squared list is actually going to have people that look differently than me people who are in a different class than me. Here's the truth today. Our church will only be as diverse as our pi squared list is. Mine and yours. And so what if we've reached out to people who are different than us, that have less than us, that have more than us, that know more and know less? Like what if we just change the way we view life and stop being attracted to everybody who just is like us? And I think it leads us to this last point that really sums up this series. That really, our goal is that we come to this place where we treat all people with dignity. We treat every single person with the dignity that God gives them, the value that God has placed on their life. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.16 says. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I love that verse because what it says is we don't allow culture to shape our opinion. We don't allow the news or social media to shape our opinion. What we allow the, to shape our opinion and our thinking is God's word and what God says. And when we, treat, when we do that, we treat people with dignity. Luke chapter 6, it's the golden rule. Most people know the golden rule. They just don't realize it came straight out of God's word. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do we live that way? Do I give the dignity to people that I want for myself, the respect, the value. Do I place that on people? The same value that I want to receive in my own life. You know, when it comes to this series, we've talked about some difficult things. And here's the conclusion that I've come to. Is what's happened is the things that God gave us, the unique things, the differences that make us all us, all of those differences were meant to be amazing things but they've become divisive things. The fact that we're male and female, the fact that we have different skin colors and backgrounds and ethnicities, the fact that some have a lot and some have a little, the fact that some know a lot and some have a little, the fact that we look differently, all those things, all of our differences have wedged a gap in our relationships. It's become a problem, a tension, and I think as the church, it's time we stood up. It's time we rose up. It's time we fought to get those things back. It's time we said, you know what, instead of being divided, maybe we, we, we rally around each other in the differences that God gave us and we celebrate those things and we allow them, instead of to divide us, we allow those things to unite us. See, we have to learn to fight for the dignity of others. We have to learn to, to give respect to people not based on who they are or what they have or what they look like. We just give it to them because God has called us to that. We must learn to fight for dignity, for respect, but ultimately we must learn to fight for justice. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. 
give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. You know, when it comes to justice, when it comes to this series, we, we see the fractures that are there. We see the fracture of racism. We see the fracture of sexism and classism and favoritism. And we recognize that to fight for justice is not an easy thing. It's a battle, a grind every day, and it might be a battle that you actually never win. And because of that fact, here's what's happened, is we've just over time of, of listening to the, the, the communication and listening to this, these topics become louder and louder, we just kind of become numb to them. The thought of fighting for justice just kind of escapes our mind. In fact, to the place where we don't even see these things anymore. In fact, I think Jesus tells a story that kind of leads us to, to a place. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story about a man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this man gathers all of his supplies and he throws all of his stuff. He grabs his wagon and he travels down this road that is narrow. It's on the side of a mountain. And as he travels, robbers and thieves come and they steal everything that he has. They beat him within an inch of death, and they leave him on the road to die. And this is where we pick up the story, Luke chapter 10. It says this, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw that man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And, and you might know this story as the Good Samaritan. I've read this story on, on a regular basis. Like, I know this story inside and out. And I've always asked this question when I've read this story is, how in the world could these two men, these are righteous men, 
A priest is much like a pastor today. A a Levite is much like an elder or an oversight team member in our church. How could these two righteous men, so-called godly men, see somebody on the road suffering, about to die, and just walk by? Just overlook it and continue on their day. And it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks when I have been studying about these things. And how many times have I done the same thing? How many times have I seen somebody suffer, somebody be in pain, and just ignore it altogether? Pretend like it doesn't exist. And here's why I think we do that. Because the conversation has gotten so loud, we've just become numb to it, and we've become numb based off of one word. Indifference. See, our numbness has caused us to become indifferent towards the man or the woman that is hurt. And here's what our indifference does, is it just builds up this barrier of excuses. See, I'm sure the the Levite and the priest, when they saw the the man, I'm sure they had some good reasoning, and we have good reasoning why we don't want to fight for justice. In fact, let me me tell you some of them. You see, maybe this morning, you would just say, I'm one person. What can I do? This problem's too big. It's, It's too much, right? Like, it's too much for me to handle. I'm one person. What, What can I do? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you look at the person who's suffering on the road and you're like, man, this is a a bloody, messy situation. Like, it's way too messy for me to tackle this. Like, I, I, I just, I just, it's too messy. Like, I'll just continue on. You know what? <laughs> Maybe that's not it. Maybe you're saying, you know what? I, I'm not a doctor. He's going to need surgery. Like, I'm not capable. Like, racism is a big deal. I don't know much about the topic. I'm not an expert, Drew. Like, don't expect me to be. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you see the person suffering and you say, well, that's going to cost a lot. Like, he's going to need surgery after surgery. He's going to need to, to be in the hospital for weeks. The price is too high. It costs too much. Or you know what? Maybe this is a lot of us. Maybe we're so busy in life. We're so busy chasing our kids. We're so busy trying to become successful or find our spouse that you know what? We're traveling down the road and there lies the man and we don't even see them. We just walk by like, I don't even see the problem, Drew, because I'm so busy. You know what, maybe some of us would say, listen, this isn't my battle to fight. Like, I'm I'm sorry you're suffering, but it's not my problem. What do you want me to do about it? Maybe some of us would see that man and we would say, well, he got what he deserved. He should have had protection. Like he had all those goods, like who travels down the road and doesn't have some form of security? You know, I I see the racism and the sexism and the classism. And you know what, honestly, like it's their fault. Not my problem, like it's, it's their problem. They made their bed, why don't they sleep in it? But this is a big one, I think, for many of us. 
You know, Drew, I, I want to help. I want to fight. I just don't have time. I'm busy. And I have no time in my schedule to fight for justice. I have no time. And here's what the Levite and the priest did. And here's what so many of us do. Is our indifference creates a wall of excuses. And you know why we feel good about our excuses? Because our wall, our barrier, we can't even see the fractures anymore. And so we go about life feeling good because, you know what, racism still exists, but I don't see it. So it's not that big of a deal. And it blinds us to the reality of what's happening. And so guess what we do? We walk on by. But here's what we fail to realize. Is that man half dead on the road is me and it is you. Because my sin put me on the side of that road and I couldn't get up in my own strength, in my own power. But Jesus Christ fought for the justice for me and for you when he went to that cross and he gave everything up so he could pick me up out of death and give me life. He reconciled my situation. He made it right and he returned and restored my relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's given me and you the ministry and the message of reconciliation. What that means is we can no longer hang to our excuses. We can no longer say, I don't got time. What if Jesus didn't have time? So what that means is I will do whatever I can. The church will stand up and rise up and we will no longer be bound by our excuses anymore. And we will fight for dignity. We will fight for justice. We will fight so that every single one of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ has the value that God has given us. Here's my fear. Man, we get excited about a series and nothing changes. That's my fear every single week that I would pour my heart and soul, that God would use me to speak to myself and to people. And we would walk out and nothing would change. And here's ultimately my challenge in this series is the only thing we can't do is nothing. The only thing we can't do based off of this series is walk out of here and not let our, our thinking at least change, not allow things to change in our hearts and the way we think. So we're gonna do something a little bit different this morning, something a little bit bold, a little bit wild, and a little bit crazy. We don't often do this in, in, at Northridge Church, but I think this is such a time. Every single one of you, when you walked into our auditorium, you were given a, a program with a sticky note on it. If you're watching online, grab a piece of paper, a pen. You'll need a pen too. Grab it right now. And would you write on it your indifference? Would you write down your excuse for not fighting, for not standing up, for not speaking out? And would you be bold enough to write it on that sticky note? Right now, I'll give you some space. Just take a second and write it down. What is your indifference? What is your excuse?
And here's what I'm gonna challenge us to do. Our bands are gonna come and they're gonna sing a couple songs. Songs that rally us around the fact that we need God. Songs that remind us that Jesus reconciled us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a church, a church that is represented by multiple backgrounds and multiple colors and, and male and female, rich and poor, educated and not. We're gonna rally together around the gospel and we're gonna declare that our differences will no longer divide us, but today we stand up, we rise up, and we will fight. And so will you take that excuse? And when our bands sing the song, would you tear it up and all around our auditoriums at all of our campuses are trash cans. And would you put that excuse where it belongs, in the trash. And so as our bands sing these songs, I would challenge you to be bold, to get beyond your nerves and to stand up while we sing and to come forward and throw your excuse in the trash. So our bands are gonna sing. And when you are ready, you come.